Good morning, Harvest. It's, it's good to be with you as always. And as we're jumping into Ephesians 1 and continuing our series, I just got to say this. I'm having so much fun with this series. There's, there's many portions of Scripture that are difficult to teach, to preach, and to study. But when it comes to this, when it comes to the book of Ephesians, especially in the first chapter, it's nothing but, but just good, good, exciting stuff. And the privilege to be able to open God's Word, to pour into it, and then bring it to you. I, I just, I've been waiting and anticipating and excited about this day. So, let me remind you. Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. And we've been in transcendence, focusing on what God has done for the last few weeks. And we ended last week hearing about our eternal inheritance and the eternal security that is in Jesus. We've heard about being chosen in Christ and adopted to sonship and redeemed through his blood and the wisdom and insight he gives us and the bright future he's prepared for us. All of these things that we look at and we, with the, the heavens are parted and we get to look into the heavenly places and see what God has done and how he's given it to all of those who believe in him. And we rejoice. And now it's only going to get better. Paul in this is going to shift. He's going to shift from description and focusing on what God has done, and he's going to pray. And he's going he's gonna to give a prayer, a transcendent prayer for the church. And he's going to open his heart to them. He's going to bleed and plead and open his heart and his desires for them. And so as we get into uh, chapter 1, specifically verses 15 through 23, what we're going to see is we're going to see desires that we should have for ourselves and each other. Because this is the prayer and the desire that Paul had for the churches. And specifically the churches in Ephesus and the other churches that would have been, he, w- he would have been writing to. Desires we should have for ourselves and for each other. You know, there's good desires in life and there's bad desires. There's desires that are pointless. I'll give you an example. I desire to be taller. I desire to be taller. And hanging upside down for an hour every day doesn't seem to help. Um, I don't do that. I'm just kidding. Many desires that we have that at the end of the day get us nowhere. Things that we look at, we look in the world, we say, I want that, I desire that, and maybe we'll spend our time, energy, and efforts pushing for it, trying to get it, only to find these things are never satisfying. And Paul's going to show us some good desires that we should have, and we should be praying for ourselves and for each other. The first desire he's going to show us He's going to rejoice. He's going to pray. The first desire, guys, we should have in our heart is a desire for a genuine salvation. A genuine salvation. Look at verse 15. Ephesians 1, verse 15. Paul says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Pause. He starts out by saying, for this reason. Well, what does he mean by that? When he says, for this reason, he's referring back to everything that he just said before. Because of all of these blessings and the focus of what God has done and what he's given to his saints, as I hear and as I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
Now, what is it about this genuine salvation? Why is he excited? Well, he's heard about them. And what he's heard specifically are two things that point to the genuineness of their salvation. And so he's able to rejoice knowing that since their salvation is genuine, they get to partake in all these blessings he just talked about. So the first, the first evidence to genuine salvation that he gives there is he says, for this reason, because I've heard, here it is, of your faith in the Lord Jesus. James tells us that the demons believe in God and they tremble. And James said that to a person who would have been lacking genuine faith. James would have said, hey, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons believe and they tremble. We need to desire a genuine salvation for ourselves. The, 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 the New Testament, and Paul specifically, test your salvation. Is it there? Constant ways to be able to look and to see, has what God, I think God has done in my heart, has he actually done it? Or have I been deceived? And that's the key. There's so much deception within our own heart, within the world, all amongst us. There will be so many people in that day that will stand before Jesus thinking they had genuine salvation, but will be revealed in that moment they never, they never had a genuine relationship with him. And Paul is rejoicing over two things here, two things that point to a genuine salvation. So we should have that desire for ourselves. It's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to think, you know, am I really saved? We should wrestle over that. Don't be overconfident. Test yourself. Faith in the Lord. We say the word faith, we're not talking about acknowledgement. And there's one of the key deceptions in our life. Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus or do you acknowledge his existence? And I think many of us walk deceived, thinking that we're right with God because we acknowledge his existence. The Pharisees, those who Jesus said, you're of the Father, you're of your Father, the devil. They would have said, God is one. They would have looked to Elohim. They would have had so many things that they would have acknowledged that would have been true and right. But they were deceived in themselves because their relationship was not personal. Faith in the Lord Jesus, not just acknowledgement, but faith, a trust a surrender and a confidence that Jesus is who he said he is. And so I'm placing myself under him and specifically his lordship, faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Savior, but he is just as equally Lord. And to, to believe in him as you saying, you know, I trust him. I'm placing my faith in him. Everything that he said about himself, everything that he did, him rising from the dead, it's all true. And yes, I acknowledge it, I believe it, but I'm joining myself to him and putting myself under his lordship. He is now my authority. I belong to him. It's something that goes a little bit further beyond just acknowledgement. And then James reveals that if that faith is real, it will manifest itself in works, that evidence that it's there. First sign of genuine salvation is faith in the Lord Jesus. But then here's the second one. Genuine faith will lead to this genuine outflow, this evidence, love toward other believers. So key, so key. If God has genuinely saved us, one thing that will be evident in our life is a love for other believers. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be kind of exhaustive here, but for a reason and for a point. Let me share with you some scripture from some of the other apostles and disciples in the New Testament that talked about this idea of the need for love as a Christian. 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John 13.35, By this, get this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, Right? They'll hear and they'll see and they'll know that you are my disciples by this. If you love one another. 1 Peter 1.22 having, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that is faith in the gospel. For what? A sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This, this type of love toward one another does not come unless there's genuine salvation. And then if there's genuine salvation, then that love will manifest itself. First Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he says this in 1 John 4.7, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves us has been born of God and knows God. Man, what a powerful evidence. He's drawing the conclusion, because there's this love for other believers, this genuine love, then I can say you've been born of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, now, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And then 1 John 4, 20, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love, love God whom he has not seen. So what does it mean? It means the acknowledgement of our lips that we love God and are his is not as powerful as the manifestation of the actual genuine salvation in us that pours itself through love for others. We must love one another if we call ourselves believers. So where do you find yourself? If Paul were to hear about West Olive, would he hear about our love for one another? Would he hear about our faith in Jesus, would he rejoice and thank God constantly? Where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself annoyed and retreating and isolating from fellow believers, finding yourself more uncomfortable to hang out with unsafe friends, people who don't go to this church, people who don't have anything to do with church? I just feel more comfortable around them. And I just, I just kind of want to do my thing. I kind of want to slip in. And uh, you know, I don't want the small group thing gets too uncomfortable. I just, I just don't want to be around other believers. It's just too uncomfortable. That's a serious thing. Because this type of love that he's talking about is a sincere brotherly love, a sacrificial love, a love that, that has affection for one another. And if that's missing, if that's missing, if that's missing, that says more to you and it should say more to you and to us than just the acknowledgement of love for God on our lips. So that's, that's the testing. That's the warning. That's the challenge. But let's get back into the heart of what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, I've heard of this. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward your other saints. And that's enough for me to rejoice and to give thanks for God because now I know you're genuine. And these blessings belong to you. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. Four years before this, he goes to Ephesus and he, he preaches, he teaches, and now he's beginning to hear of the fruit. He's in prison at this moment. He would love to be there. But as he hears words, as, as letters come to him and as people come to him while he's in prison, he begins to hear these things. 
How much joy would you experience as, as you hear your actual son or daughter who's been wayward comes to know the Lord and then you begin to see fruit in their life and love towards other believers and getting involved in the church. Oh, the excitement and the joy that would come from that. Paul, in the same way, he hears of the genuine salvation of those who he talked to several years ago and the joy of being able to be in prison with the attack of the enemy. You failed. God's not with you. He's not doing anything through you. And then to hear a word, no, there's believers growing and genuine salvation being produced in and through this church. What an encouragement for Paul. And so he's writing to these churches, reminding them of the blessings they have in God, what God has done. And then he says, for this reason, because of all of these blessings that God is giving, when I hear that you're genuinely saved, I rejoice because now I know all of these things are yours. I can't help but to rejoice and to remember you in my prayers and to thank you constantly. Now, fast forward 30 years, we see John being told by Jesus to send a warning to the church of Ephesus that they've fallen from their first love. Faith, hope, love. Love is the most important. Love is so, so important. To the point that a church that was so doctrinally sound, so powerful and not tolerating evil, getting all their ducks in a row when it comes to theology and doctrine, all of those things, 30 years later, Jesus is saying, fix this one thing. Return to a genuine love for me and one another, or else I will come and remove your lampstand. We should have this desire for ourselves, church. For ourselves and each other. A genuine salvation. It's okay to wrestle with that. We should. Let's treat it seriously. And always be testing our heart. God, you working in and through me. Do I love my brothers and sisters? And is my faith, is my faith a surrender to your lordship and a genuine belief in you? The big question as we move on. The big question, here's what I want us to, to ask. Does what we know affect who we are, what we do, and how we feel? Does what we know affect who we are, what we do, and how we feel? So the first desire Paul gives, genuine salvation. I'm excited. But then he's going to go into his, his, uh, his desire for them to have, what we're going to see next, is a greater understanding a greater understanding. Understanding of what? Of the things he's been saying all along. A greater understanding. By the time we get to chapter three, you guys will see it. Paul says this, that you may know him better. He's saying all of these things so that their understanding of who God is and what he has done will simply grow. And so we're gonna see in this transcendent prayer still this idea of understanding. Again, we haven't got to transformation yet. We're not there we won't get there for a while, and Paul knows that because it's necessary to grow in our understanding of God. Second desire we should have is a greater understanding. Look at verse 17 with me, church. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Pause. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, may give you. You see where this is coming from? This is something that is coming from God and it's, it's being given. 
It's not something we muster up in ourselves. It's not something that we, we train ourselves for. It's given and imparted by God. Paul knew that, and so he was praying for it. That he would give you what? A spirit or the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Maybe your Bible says the word the before spirit and it capitalizes the word est and then maybe you're tempted to think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Well, this type of knowledge that's imparted comes from the Holy Spirit, but in this point here, he's talking about an attitude or a disposition of spirit, of wisdom, and revelation and the knowledge of him. How do you get this knowledge? It's from God that he may give you slash enlighten your eyes of your heart, which is your mind, How? By prayer. By prayer. And so here's an implication that we see already in the text. The implication is this. I can be genuinely saved. I can be genuinely saved but fall short of having this type of spirit of wisdom and understanding. And so Paul knew that. And so he's praying that God would impart this to them. And that their essence, their disposition, their attitude would be one that was, that was wise, having a deeper understanding of the truths of God. Revelation that they would get knowledge, supernatural knowledge, that God would impart that to them, and then they would have the ability to apply that to their life. That doesn't just happen because we decide we're going to live that way. James even said, if you want wisdom, you've got to pray for it. So Paul's praying this for them. We must desire and pray this for ourselves. We have to acknowledge, God, I'm in a place where I can admit I don't know everything. And even though I feel fine, I can acknowledge there's things that I'm missing. And maybe my disposition and my attitude isn't one of wisdom and of knowledge and revelation in Jesus. And so therefore, I'm going to pray and ask you to open my eyes even more. What is it? Paul wants us to have a great understanding of, a greater and growing understanding of. He's going to give us three things, and here's what we're going to look at. First and foremost, a greater understanding of God's blessings. A greater understanding of God's blessings. Look at verse 18. He says, I'm praying that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He wants them to have a greater understanding of the blessings of God, the things that he just talked about, being chosen and adoption and redemption and wisdom and bright future and an inheritance and eternal security, all of these things. I, I want you to know these things, to grasp them. And he says specifically to know what is the hope to which he has called you. I want you to think about when Jesus opened the eyes of blind people. Was that a big deal? Think about it. Was that a big deal? Someone who could not see now can see. Now, how does the life of someone who's blind and then can physically actually see colors and their family members and places and things and they can actually see things for the first time ever, does that change their life? Let me see with your head. Go like this if you believe it does. Absolutely. Yeah. To not be able to see something And then to see it sheds light, greater understanding and knowledge, and it changes who we are. And just like someone who's blind, healed by Jesus, physically can now see. And you see the excitement and the joy and now the ability to go through life with that knowledge. Paul is asking, open the eyes of our heart, or more specifically, our mind. We're blind to things. We can't seek after things we don't even know we can't see. 
And so when God opens our eyes to be able to see these things and to know them properly, you better believe it will change us and transform us. That's why it's so necessary to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. First, we must realize we're blind of the deep things of God and we will not see them unless he opens our eyes to them. And next, we must seek and desire to have our eyes opened just like a blind person desires to see. Look what he says here. I want your eyes to be open to the hope which he has called you. That word hope, the assurance or anticipation with pleasure of something to come. Think about being in life and going through a hard time. Is there hope there? Is there, regardless of what you're going through, a pleasurable anticipation of what God's given you? And though everything around you is falling to pieces, you look up and you remember what God's given you and everything else starts to fall away by the way. So we see it happen in the Psalms all the time, right? Peril and danger and screaming for help to God. But as they speak to God and scream to help, their situation doesn't change, but their understanding of who he is and what he's given them does. And they begin to all of a sudden start praising God in the midst of their trials. That's it. And Paul says, I want you to know this. I want you to know the hope to which you are called. That you do have something ahead waiting for you. That God is molding you into the image of his son. You've been called and predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And God is working that in you. And what awaits you is an imperishable, undefiled inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. Nothing can happen to you. Even if you die, you gain. Nothing can happen to you that should bring you to a place where you're not always remembering the hope that you have. Then he says this, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Which is more good stuff that he's just talked about. Now, let me, let me bring this home a little bit. What are the implications of not growing in understanding of God's blessings? Right? Okay, so what if I don't grow in my understanding of these things? Well, here's what will happen. We will begin to work for things we already have. We'll begin to slave away and strive and work for things that God's already given us. You'll desire to seek things that never satisfy. How sad when a Christian falls into the trap of the quest for something more in their Christian life, as if they needed more of the Holy Spirit or more power or more love or more life or more motivation. No, the only thing we need are our eyes to be open to the things God's already given us. If we feel we're missing anything, it's because we walk in ignorance, not because God's holding it back. So if you don't feel rich toward God, if you don't feel blessed, maybe the eyes of your heart have not been open to the blessings you already have in Christ. So pray and desire to know those things. Look at the next thing he says in verse 19. A greater understanding of God's power. He says this, And I want you to know what is the immeasurable, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. My goodness. The immeasurable greatness of his power. To who? Toward us who believe. And what type of power? He uses this word according to again. Remember when he said according to the riches of his grace, God's giving out of his riches and according to his riches. He's here giving out and he's giving according to his great might. And where did he display this might? He displayed it in Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. 
What type of power is this? It is a power that goes beyond any comprehension of man. It goes beyond any weapon of mass destruction. It goes beyond any bodybuilder. It goes beyond any athlete. It goes beyond any distance of light years between galaxies. It goes beyond anything and everything. And that's been given to you. All of it. All of it has been given to you. You already have this power. To ask for power is to show that we don't realize we already have it and it's available to us at all time. We don't need more power or strength. We need greater understanding of the power and the strength he's given us. God, open our eyes. It's like a guy who's going to war and he's, he's shooting and he, he, he runs out of ammo and he starts screaming around, screaming, I need a reload, I need ammo, I need ammo. And then you look and you see and he's got like 600 bullets strapped to his vest and he doesn't even know it. What are the implications of not growing in the understanding of God's power? You'll begin to doubt what he can do for you and through you. You'll always struggle with doubt and faithlessness. You'll never walk on water. You'll never face giants. You'll never uh, uh, win over anxiety. You'll always live in constant fear. And you'll live at the door to defeat constantly. Ultimately, in the worst case scenario, you'll resent God because you'll believe he's been uninvolved in your life and unable to help. If you lack faith and ability and God's ability to work in your life, then your understanding of his power is flawed. You've got to pray for a greater understanding of it, at least acknowledge, man, something's wrong here in my understanding because I'm doubting God too much. Look at the final understanding he wants us to have. A greater understanding, not only the blessings we have of the power that God's given to us, but also of God's son, ultimately of God's son. And again, all of this is a run-on sentence. It's kind of hard to divide it up. But he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus when he talked about Jesus being risen from the dead, seated at God in the heavenly places. He says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but into the one to come. Where is Jesus' position? Who is Jesus? Where is he now? He is in the highest of highs of places. There is no place higher than where he is sitting right now. There's not even a ceiling above him because then that ceiling would be above him. You find the powers and authorities on earth, you find that ceiling, then you break through the ceiling and you look and Christ is still ultimately higher than all other things and he's been given that seat of authority. It says here, and he put all things under his feet. What does that mean? Well, we just sang the song, The Great I Am. Mountains shake before him, the demons run and flee, the earth is his footstool. So what type of evil and mastermind planning can go on in this world that's still not under the feet and the victory of Jesus? Nothing. Nothing happens in this world apart from him allowing it and him being over it. Jesus is supreme and he sits on the highest throne. There is no higher throne. Hebrews does a beautiful job telling us, hey, he's, though he was with us, he was a man. He's been exalted above the angels, above us. He has been given the highest seat of dominion and authority. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things in the church. Not only is he supreme leader and the supreme authority of the unbelieving world, even though they don't acknowledge him, he is the supreme authority over the believing world. 
and he is the head of the body of the church, which is his body. Listen to this, verse 23. The fullness of him, the body of Christ, the church, is the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Do you know what that means? Is there anything lacking in Jesus? Let me see by you shaking your head. Is there anything lacking in Jesus? Is, is there anything about Jesus that's like, that can be numbered or isn't infinite? Shake your head, yes or no. Is there anything not completely eternal and forever great? I can't even describe it. I'm sitting here trying to find words to describe it. And what he's saying is the fullness of Jesus, who he is and the fullness of him flows through and is in the body of the church. That means you have been made complete. You've been made complete in Christ. As Paul tells us in the book of Colossians, you lack nothing. We lack nothing, church. But when we fail to understand and to grow in a greater understanding of God's son, what happens? Our personal relationship begins to stagnate. Our praise to him will be void of worth and heartfelt emotion. Our temptations to listen to something or someone else will begin to win. Our praise of man and authorities will take place. His lordship over us will feel oppressive. You won't feel the conviction to obey his commands. Jesus will become a kind, compassionate man that did great things for people. You'll make another gospel that diminishes the deity and sovereignty and lordship and authority of Jesus. The path of the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, the Islams, Judaism today, and many others are taken because of a lack of understanding of who Jesus really is. Mighty God, Lord, Savior, King, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last. I'm not going to stop there. Let's keep going. Advocate, Lamb of God, Counselor, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the chosen and anointed Son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father, who will judge the world, who holds everything together, who has the preeminence over all things, who is the head of the body of the church, who is the fullness of God, and it was pleased to dwell in him. The humble feet-washing servant who loved and died for us all, who's coming again and will rescue us once and for all, as the bride from the groans of this current age and flesh and give us new bodies to be like him and to see him and dwell with him forever. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. There are major implications, bad implications of when we fail to grow in our understanding of who he is. Paul understood this. And so he's praying earnestly, God, open the eyes of their hearts. And so now we pray now. God, open the eyes of our hearts here, even in West Olive, personally and collectively as a church. We, we, we admit we don't know everything. And the things that our eyes are close to, we don't even know we need to see them. But what we do know is we lack confidence and we lack things and, 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 and we see us being tempted and beaten and tossed around by philosophy and every wind of doctrine and we struggle with things. And so God, we're asking the holes of our life well, we're missing this understanding. It only will come for you. So open the eyes of our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts and enlighten us to these great, great things. Let's pray. Father, as always, the inadequacy of being able to fully describe the greatness of your word and what it means 
overcomes me. But God, we know and acknowledge and believe you are all, you are in all the fullness of you is available to us. We have your power. All of it is available to us. Help us not to seek for more when we already have it. God, when we show through our very actions and our lack of faith and understanding that we're missing these things, we rely and we look to you as the author and finisher of our faith to bring us the knowledge of these things, not the knowledge that will puff us up to arrogance, but the knowledge that will transform us into the image of your Son. God, that's our prayer we ask in his name alone. Amen. Amen.